Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. Um, yeah, uh, unfortunately, we we didn't get the recording of last week. Um, <laughs> no, it's we're, we're not going to blame Danny. It's, it's one of those things that you know. People have a lot on the plate, so uh, uh, I was just letting you know in case you were looking for it because um, <clears throat> it would have been nice to have, but obviously we, we don't have it if you're looking for it as <clears throat> part of the going beyond Jesus um, thing when we talked about what are the benefits. Um, so tonight I wanted to um, carry on down that track a little bit, talk a little bit more on the benefits. Um, I said last week how um, I was wanting to be mindful of whether in our deconstruction and of course coming back to to repurposing whether there are uh, some things that um, we have not emphasized enough but but should be and are part of our um, our repurposing on the journey and um, I think it some of it depends on on the type of personality you are as to what you think are the elements that would most help you and um uh, and so i think you know again i think everything that's been introduced has been relevant and valid and and is a vital part of the process that we've been going through um but it would also be be if if having gone down a line that says we question everything, even the questions, then then we have to let the questions be questioned and the answers to the questions also be questioned so that by that we actually, we don't replace one bondage with another bondage, but actually in coming out of bondage, we try to work our way through and say, so, you know. So I've been trying to and, and want to just take a little shot at it again tonight, trying to establish what might be the essential elements of a repurposed understanding from our deconstructed basis. Um, it was interesting, I, I saw a little bit of a program um, yesterday where they were um, reconstructing some properties in New Orleans um, after the hurricane that went through. Do you remember all the damage that was caused the hurricane and the and the walls gave way on the, um, you know, because a lot of it, like like um, Amsterdam, is below sea level. And of course, the sea came in, and basically most of the buildings were were um, were set on on concrete blocks. Because Americans build different to we build. We build proper buildings. And uh, I often say to my American friends, okay, so you continue to build buildings out of wood 
knowing that the next tornado that comes through will flatten everything. It's like, I don't, you know, we English don't get that. We don't, you know, we have no concept for why you would do that. Uh, I mean, part of it is because um, uh, the wood for the building is so much more readily available there than it is to us, and that's their construction industry. Everything is, is timber frame buildings. But the problem is in, in New Orleans, the timber frame buildings were set on, on concrete bases, but of course, as the water came over the levees and, um, and began to fill up the land that was below sea level, uh, all it did was floated the buildings off the concrete. And then, of course, they just smashed down and then all the other, you know, they're floating down the street and then... Um, <clears throat> but um, um, in the deconstruction of, of those areas of New Orleans, many of them uh, poverty areas, um, rather wisely, the, some architects came in and said, will you let us handle the job? And because um, they're coming in and on the... On the on the reconstruction now, what they're doing is they're putting timber piles right way to 40 feet into the mud, which of course then the, the new build on top is, is fixed to the piles and therefore, and it's also put on an elevated platform. So if, if they get the same problem, it's basically hurricane proof. It won't move, it won't float off its footings. And um, um, as I was watching it, I thought, yeah, that, those are the issues that when you've deconstructed, you have to think more deeply than just reconstructing what it is you deconstructed, uh, just with different materials. You have to have a different idea. You have to think, maybe what were the problems? And I, I, I do actually think that um, um, our, our version of Christianity and introduction to Christianity with all the, the good things within it has been like those buildings in New Orleans that were set on the concrete blocks, foundation of the apostles' doctrine, but it wasn't, it wasn't put in the right place in the right way. So the trouble is when, when a flood of questions come in, which much of the world is asking, the whole thing for me has floated off its footings and gone down the street and then smashed into other stuff. And uh, um, so what we're trying to do in, you know, in, 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 in the coming months, weeks, years, whatever, is as we've said, not just to do reconstruction, but to do repurposing. We have to think further than just a new construction. We have to think there has to be something that understands the purpose that we're trying to accomplish. We don't want to float off the blocks. We want to be solid. We want to stand firm and we want to be there for many years to come in the developing conversation that is emerging you know, in, within what we would know as the body of Christ. So, so ends my question last week when we talked about, um, about the benefits and trying to reestablish in our thinking, are there some things that we have been provided and we have access to and we, I don't like the word right because it, you know, it, it's like, it's like a legal term, but but we have the opportunity, the privilege to draw upon, believe for in our own lives so that we don't rule out the, the presence of what I would call the unseen. Whether you want to use the word miraculous or whatever, I call it the unseen a little bit because I think some people who struggle with what we mean by miraculous, you know, have to accept there is an unseen. And to me, that's the realm of faith. It's the realm of miracle. Uh, it's the realm of the unexpected. 
but of course we also talked about there are complications that go along with that um, in that it is not a precise science that says, you know, these benefits are these and therefore everybody, this is what will happen to everybody. But we talked about a little bit last week about how they are accessible and, and the things that we can do in terms of our confession and our belief um, to at least give us the possibility. Because remember, the other thing we said is that there's nothing in scripture that says that all things are inevitable if you believe. But it says, with God, all things are possible and all things are possible to him who believes. So we, we can take one of two stances. We can say, if it's not inevitable, then I don't want to be involved. Or we can say, if it's possible, I would at least like to, I'd at least like to try and be in a position where the possible might become reality. But if the possible doesn't become inevitable, I was never promised that it would be inevitable, but I have been told it's possible. So the truth is I would have to say I've been the beneficiary of, 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 of several um, miracles in my life that, that you would struggle to explain them any other way. Um, but I've also been in situations where what I would have liked to have been the outcome was not the outcome. So I can say, well, because it didn't work there, it's all rubbish. Or I can say, well, I know it didn't work there, but I know it did work there. It's like, it's like the nudges, you know. I know I didn't get a word on that, but I absolutely know I got a word on that. So, so what I'm saying is in our repurposing, this is not an absolute science. It's a possible. It's the possibilities that exist when we come into an understanding that the, 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 the great mystery is Christ in you, the hope, there is a hope that comes with it, and the hope of presence, manifest presence, you know, and all the things we talked about with, with um, you know, hope and the glory and all that stuff, but I'm not, not going to go over last week just really to, 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 re, to re-stimulate your thinking to live in this realm of possibility so that, as I said, if, if, our, if our deconstruction leaves us without any of those possibilities, I, I use the phrase, then it's the deconstruction too far. Um, you know, there must have been many weddings um, in Galilee that ran out of wine, but on this particular one, you know, on this particular one, <laughs> Something happened and water was turned to wine. So what about the other, you know, we can go all night about, well, what about the other weddings? What about, you know, what about the other poor people? What about the other lepers? What about whatever? And in some ways we can become then ungrateful for when, when I would say when, when, when somehow heaven and earth become one, when, when, when the unseen and the seen come together, when, when we go beyond the realm of just natural ability and something beyond, which, it, which in the Christ is part of us, because we, we are not just earthlings in the sense of, you know, we are just bound by all the laws of nature. We actually are, are released into spiritual laws. The, the, you know, the law of the spirit of life has made me free from the law of sin and death. So, so, so all I'm saying is we, we need to leave room within what we believe for the law of the spirit of life to work within that and within our realm. So there was another verse that um, I wanted to just talk about for a few minutes tonight. And um, most of what we've 
used to talk about the Christ has been in Galatians and Colossians, particularly Colossians, you know, about the mystery, which is Christ in you. And remember that, if you get that in your spirit, the mystery is not the virgin birth, it's not, it's not the creation of the world, it's not even the, the cross, it's not even the resurrection. Paul says the mystery that you've got to get all of is Christ in you, that's the hope of glory. Otherwise, everything is separate. Rather than everything becoming one in Christ, and therefore the flow of everything that's in Christ meeting the flow of everything that's in us and, and the two, you know, doing whatever. So this other verse that I wanted to talk about for a, a little while is in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And um, I'm going to read it in the New King James Version. We don't have as broad a Bible stuff in here at the moment. We must get um, geared up for that, but that doesn't, doesn't matter too much. Um, and it's in verse 21 through 23. Now, um, it's going to talk about three personalities here, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. Now, Cephas is simply um, the other Greek word for Peter. So Cephas is, is Peter. Apollos was another um, Bible teacher, apostolic figure in the early church. And of course, Paul, you, you're aware of who Paul was, but basically in 1 Corinthians 3, it's this whole thing of where there's, 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 there's strife and infighting and division because there are people who are saying, oh, we, you know, we've, we follow Apollos' teaching, and then there's others saying we follow Paul's teaching. And um, what it's created is this, is this conflict where, in many ways, the two sides were unable to come together and, 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 and share experiences and thought. And I've no idea what Apollos was teaching. You know, um, Paul said he was an excellent teacher. You know, some of Paul's teaching we've read, some of Paul's teaching, I'm not sure whether it got adjusted into what some people thought Paul should have been teaching if Paul had had any sense to teach what they believed. You know what I mean? Because unfortunately that does happen. But, um, but Paul, in, his, in dealing with this, makes a, a very powerful... Christ-centered um, statement, which, which is what I want to look at. So here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21. Therefore, let no one boast in men. So, so starting here, what he's really saying is that we've got to be really careful about um, having iconic figures uh, in ministry... Uh, to whom we accredit such authority that we have no ability within ourselves to evaluate and measure and question what it is that those men are saying. So, so we've developed a Romanesque Greek system in church where, you know, uh, we, we have placed such authority in ministry, which... Yeah, there should be the honor, there should be the respect, and I would hope that to some degree there would be trust. You know, if you've known someone for some time, you build up a level of trust about things that they may be saying you don't yet understand, and, and I, I, I totally get that. But the truth is, you know, we, we have developed in, in Christianity what I call Hollywood, which operates just the same as Hollywood. In the, you know, we have celebrities, we have celebrity pastors, we have, we have celebrity churches, which I, I'm not questioning whether 
whether they do are doing good or not, but I'm questioning the status we sometimes place upon those uh, means that we have lost our, first of all, our own identity. We have no identity. Our identity is just in that. And, uh, you know, for a long period of my life, and maybe I'm still guilty of it, I had no identity outside of the church. The church was my identity. Ministry was my identity. And um, uh, it never dawned on me to question much, really. In fact, the stuff that I questioned, I only questioned because I was told I should question it. So a bit like people, there are many people who, who have not read any of Rob Bell's books, um, but they're very judgment of Rob Bell. And if you ask them why, because somebody told them, don't read Rob Bell, well, that's, that's, that's immature and pathetic and stupid. And um, Paul starts out this, this chapter 3 in Corinthians with saying that, I have to be honest with you guys, you, you, you behave like infants, and so I've treated you like infants. And you need to understand that all I've ever given you is milk. I've never given you meat, because if I were to give you meat, you'd just choke on it, because basically you're a bunch of immature kids in the context of your faith and your journey, and uh, so he's saying, so I only gave you milk. I'm in, uh, you know, I mean, what an indictment to say, you guys are struggling and I'm not even giving you anything really to struggle about. But what you've gotten locked into is about personalities and all that kind of stuff. So, so, so Paul fights the personality cult thing by saying, let no one boast in men. Um, and then he makes this statement which is where I wanted to go this, because it's the Christ thing. For all things are yours. Now, we'll, I'll broaden that out a little bit in a moment. So he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter. So he was saying, actually, they're all yours. They, they belong to You don't belong to them. They belong to you. And he widens that further, he says, so he says, um, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. Now, we have developed in our separation theology the idea that none of it belongs to us, it all belongs to God, and that God operates in a way that's distinctly separate from us because we're not worthy to be part of this, and we should be just jolly grateful that God even included us to the point of Jesus dying for us, you know, but we should still remember that, you know, how we were taught it, we were a sinner saved by grace, which, which there, is, there is a kind of warmth in that if you have a low opinion of yourself, but the problem is, if you never move on from sinner saved by grace, what's happening is you're always working from a place of condemnation, of, of, of unacceptance, of unworthiness, of imperfection, of lack of holiness, because oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, I'm not just a sinner saved by grace. I, I am as much a child, a son, a daughter, the offspring of God as Jesus. I am as much the powerful creation of God 
as, as you can take any of the issues like Adam and the first story, whether they were the first male and female or not, which they potentially weren't or weren't the only ones. The issue is that the essence is that, that God's breath was in them. God breathed in them and said, you're going to live. Why are they living? Because the breath is in them. God breathed and said, you're going to come alive. And he blessed them. He blessed them to multiply, to increase, to subdue, to rule. He blessed them to a place of, 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 of um, connection and position and outflow that you could not separate from his nature and personality and being. We, we were an extension. He made us in his likeness and in his image, or in other words, he made us part of him here. So, so the, whole, the whole issue with um, then this, this thing that, that, that if we don't grab that, then we think that, that we, we have no place and no authority in anything because it doesn't belong to us. But Paul's fighting that idea and saying, actually, all things are yours. Again, I'll read it. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, whatever those characters are, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. And then he goes in verse 23 and says, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So let, let's break this down a little further. When, when we read that, what's the one thing noticeably not mentioned here in the list of ownership? Well, seeing as we haven't got it on the screen for you to examine, I'll tell you. It's the past. He never mentions the past. He says, all the world, all life, all death, all things present, all things to come, all are yours, but he never mentions the past. In other words, grace removes ownership of the past. Now, Grace doesn't stop us acknowledging how the past has brought us to where we are, but if the past is not in its proper context, the past will always condemn us. It will always accuse us. It will be the thing in which we lose ourselves because of our failures, our regrets, the stuff that has happened. So, so Paul's saying an amazing thing here. He's saying, take ownership of the present, right? But the past is not yours. Now, I, I could go all, all scriptural here and say, if as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes your transgressions from you. If every morning the mercies of God are new because of his faithfulness, then the truth is whatever was before the present actually does not belong to us. If you want to talk about, if there's anything you would say that God has absorbed into himself and continues to absorb into himself as the Christ through the work of Jesus, it's our past. It's consistently and totally and constantly absorbed within whatever he has done, however mystically you wish to embrace that, whether you look at it from a covenantal perspective that says God promises himself about how he will be towards us and does not invite us into that equation because that would be the weak link. The truth is, the past is not mentioned here. So, so we have to be careful even when 
we are being honest about ourselves. If we take too much ownership of the past, the danger is that we take ownership of it from a condemnation perspective that leaves us saying, I failed, I'm not good enough, that will always be what happens to me, I'm never going to make it, look what happened there. And I can be really guilty of that, of being very self-condemnatory because you look at stuff that you actually can't do anything about you know, the, the past is the one thing you can do nothing about. Now, I know you could say, well, you know, you can apologize, you can ask for forgiveness, you can forgive. Yeah, and all those things are, are valid and relevant. But in the essence of the thing, the truth is the past, the one thing the past did is deliver us to today. But Paul says, you, you, you do not own the past but you do own the present is yours and the future is yours, which I find very powerful because he's saying, okay, so, so the statement of this verse is suggesting that, that everything is and will work for us if we let it and cooperate with it. So if we'll grasp that, that all things are ours, the world is ours, life is ours, even death is ours, the present is ours, things to come, are, they're all ours, then the, the, the issue is that, that if everything is and will work for us, will we let it and will we cooperate with it or will we argue against it? Mostly we will argue against it when we decide that the past is ours because we'll say it never happened then. It didn't work out before. You know, so we begin to locate on things that then affect our ability to take hold of the present. Say, but actually, the present is mine. What happens to me in the present, I can take hold of because I am told that I own the present, I own the future. I even life is mine, death is mine, all things, all things are mine. And then um, I also put that we too are wrapped around like the forming pearl because when he says, "And you are Christ's." And Christ is God's. It, it, it's not, it's not, we have conversations about what is dualism. You know, dualism is the, is the intense separation of, of, of the flesh, the, the human side and the, the spirit side, the unseen side, which, which came from Plato. Who, who brought this idea that we're separate and that, 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 that our human self, our physical self, is basically flawed and sinful and, and useless and horrible and it fails. And the spirit thing, and of course, out of that have, have come Christian doctrines that have been influenced by Plato and not scripture. Um, and because we've read words like flesh and spirit, we have also imposed, like Plato, that, that flesh, is, flesh is wrong. So, so what we mean by carnal is often not what really was meant in scripture with Paul about carnal. You know, it, we've made it more than just to do with our human flesh. We've made it to do with the fall, to do with failure, to do with inerrant badness and, 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 um, and sinfulness. When actually the issue is we are human living a human life in a human world, but there's also a perspective to us that is spirit, that is part of the unseen, that is, that is our life connection to things bigger than just our human form. So, so what I like about this is that he's saying, okay, all these things are yours and you are Christ's, 
and Christ is God. So, so I'm taking all of these things in the context of what I am trying to wrap around life. What do I wrap around the challenges, the issues, as we talked on Sunday, the grit, you know, the parasites. How am I going to deal with that? Well, I have to start from the position that all things are yours, right? This is, this is not something that cannot be encased and taken a hold of and, and radically changed from, from the grit to the pearl. And then, and then as I wrap that with all my understanding of all things are mine, the world, life, death, etc., what, what Paul's saying is, but then you're in Christ, right? You're, you are Christ, and Christ is God. So, so we've got this image he's trying to, to, to paint here in the metaphor that, that, that you're wrapped in, Christ is wrapped around you and is part of you, and you're within, and that Christ is wrapped around by God. Now, it might sound very separate, like God and Christ are separate people, but of course, one of the problems with, with our understanding of, of the spiritual is, is the question that was wrestled with that caused um, the doctrine of the Trinity to come into being. Because at the root of the question of the Trinity, you know, um, Father, Son, Spirit, was the question they were wrestling with is that, is that God could not be limited to one form of expressed being, but because we are human, we best understand things in an expressed being form. But if we're going to understand it in an expressed being form, we can't just talk about God as Father. We have to also talk about, you know, what they would do as Son and their Spirit. Now, I would say in that whole equation, our understanding of Christ comes into that. But it's the issue of trying to verbalize um, what I would explain this way, that it is, it is, it is totally of one essence, but there are distinct manifestations that sometimes giving them a name helps us to best classify what they are within, within the whole thing. So it was this whole thing in the Trinity that, that, that one God, three persons in, in, in one, was, was, a, was a real desperate attempt to try to say, how do we classify the distinct observable expressions of this being that we know as God, while also saying that they're actually, while being, while you can express them distinct and separate, they are actually not separate. They are completely absorbed within and totally one and the same. And that's what they were wrestling with. And it's just as difficult today when we deconstruct some ideas and we come to understand the being of God, the beingness of God, the I amness of God, as opposed to male, white-bearded judge in long robes on a throne somewhere else, which, which we've all had that image within us and long, you know, white-bearded, long-robed, um, of course, white Caucasian, uh, on a throne, judge, sends his distinctly separate son, and then, of course, the whole thing about kills his son, and then and, and we go to all the things of we, we start to think of identities that, that are separate and different, and, of course, that's where we get into trouble then that somehow God has to 
appease his own anger, and, and the son is the one who appeases God's own anger. So God's trying to solve his own problem by killing his own son. And then you start thinking, but then where is the love? You know, all the things we've talked about in, in, in essence in that. So what I'm trying to get through to you is the thing is, is we use language that separates into categories but in many ways, they are, they are categories that we are defining verbally, but actually, in reality, if they could be seen, you would see that actually it is a being, a continuous, it's a whole thing that exists. A bit like, you know, when I look at you, I don't see, I don't see that the electrons and the neutrons that make up the atoms and the cells of your body, I see you as a, a whole person, but, but if we were to dissect you if we were to put you under a microscope we would find increasing levels of things that make you up that are distinct in their own right but but they have no distinction in their own right when i see you as a person i see you as the person but but all these elements are distinct and separate and yet one do you understand what i'm saying so so when we use these terminologies um, they are to try and help us to grasp that in, in this whole issue that everything belongs to us, in that we are wrapped in Christ and Christ is wrapped in God and you've got the pearl process thing going on there, the layers, which is, which is wonderful. So, uh, does that mean if, if, if I'm in Christ and Christ is in God, does that mean therefore that we are inherently evil because we have to be wrapped around by Christ and wrapped around by God because that would have been a conclusion at one time. If, if that's the case, it must be because we are, we are so evil. Um, in the same way that one can wrongly decide that in the process of the creation of the pearl that we talked about on Sunday, that the grit is evil. Or, or the parasite, which has just as much right to exist because it's part of creation, that the parasite is evil. But that's because the problem is we, we've got so hung up with, with right and wrong and good and evil that anything that's grit in life, we think that must be evil. And then, of course, the next thing is that must have come from the devil. And so the next thing is we're fighting the devil. And, and, and then, you know, we go down all kinds of tracks. Incidentally, just on that, um, I, I've become very aware in recent months um, watching some things particularly about the Roman Empire and the Caesars that um, we have particularly in Western Christianity I can't speak as much for the East but we have simply replaced Caesar with God and uh, if you understand the you know, the Caesars, of course, you know, from Julius Caesar, they, they began to deify themselves. They believed that they actually were God. They, and, and the son of God is a phrase that, that was used, um, you know, for the Caesars of Rome, which, of course, you know, it all gets very complicated then because when you start reading about references to the son of God in, uh, in Scripture, you realize actually there were the connotations to people back in the first century when much further than our, or Jesus is the son of God, they realized that to say that was to declare that, that Caesar wasn't the son of God. You know, that the, the great emperor of Rome was not the son of God, but this, 
this carpenter's son from Galilee was the son of God. That was, that was putting him, that was putting him not just on a par with the, with the emperors, the Caesars. It was replacing the emperor by saying he is the son of God. The only son of God was insurrection against Rome. So there was, there was within this, which we'd never been introduced to something very political. Uh, about the statements that were being made, even that Jesus is the Son of God, was a political statement that said, therefore Caesar, who is the emperor of Rome, is not. And so therefore the emperor must be unseated, but not by violent insurrection, but by the one who absorbs what the Caesars would have done. You see, the Caesars would have fought against being taken and punished and crucified and sacrificed. Jesus didn't. He did the opposite. He absorbed that in a non-violent response. It was all very anti and countercultural to the whole thing. So there's many things going on in the mind of these people. And yeah, I'm just digressing a little bit now. The problem is what I've realized is that the image that we have developed of, of, um, of God and of Jesus has really been... Um, a replacement for what would have been afforded to how you would have uh, seen the Caesars and the emperors of Rome. And so hence all the stuff that we came up with about the God that most of us were introduced to was a God of war. He was a God who was going to pursue his enemies and destroy his enemies so that he could take their land and, and, and take the inhabitants of the land captive. And however we worded that, actually, if you were to mirror what our understanding of God was and what the understanding of Caesar and the Roman Empire was, you'd see what simply happened as Christianity began to develop beyond the second and third century was we created the Roman emperor system of a Caesar, and in place of that, we simply put God and Jesus, but it was the same kind of process. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then, of course, the other thing that we did was, you know, the great thing about uh, uh, within the empire was, um, was, was, was the army and warriors, and of course, the, the, um, the Colosseum and the games and the gladiators, gladiatorial combat. And so what's interesting is that even how we began to understand things like prayer became a direct comparison with how you would have understood uh, gladiatorial combat. We, and I mean, if those of you remember back, we even called our prayer place the arena. And, you know, I'm thankful for those days. I have, you know, uh, that doesn't belong to us. The present belongs to us. So... Right or wrong, it doesn't matter because, you know, the past is not ours, the present is ours. But the whole thing was, the whole idea of, 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 of our battling against an enemy, our trying to overcome, you know, the warriors that came to fight us, looks more like the idea of the Roman Colosseum than it actually does, you know, the Spirit of Christ and, and, and the true expression of the Gospel. And because we've talked to you at length about how uh, things have been influenced culturally by these, these, um, these realms of thought. Um, and so, I don't know how we got onto that, but I thought it was worth mentioning anyway. Um, so we're wrapped, when, when we talk about, oh, I know why we got onto it, because 
the idea from those kind of thinkings that, that we let run where they shouldn't go is that any grit in the oyster must be evil. You know, any parasite that finds its way in there, this must be evil. Um, because that's how we've been wired, you know. So then we are very ill-equipped to really believe that all things are, are yours because all we can see is, is this, this, this overburdened thing that recognizes everything that does not suit as being evil. It must be of the devil because it involves suffering. It must be of the devil because it's difficult. It must be of the devil because it's not what I want. So, so we've, we've coordinated our thinking in that way, which, which, which means it's difficult for us to then believe all things are ours because we don't think we're worthy or equipped or blessed or we have the position where we can say, but all things are ours. We know where we are at the moment. We know the stuff in the oyster, but all is ours. It all belongs to us. So, so I put the question, does that mean if... if if we are wrapping life around with all things are ours, and if we're wrapped around in Christ and Christ is wrapped around in God, does that mean, therefore, that we're iner inherently evil because we need Christ around us and God around us? Um, or, or that we have aspects of us that are irritants in the context of our often expressed incompatibility with the flow of life? So the point I'm trying to make is, don't make the irritants and the issues uh, become things that are labeled as evil just because they actually are not the things that best suit or that we totally like in thinking, well, you know, the old thing, well, this shouldn't be happening to me. So if, if, if all things are yours, that raises only one question, really which is, what are you going to do with them? And that, that's, the, that's the $10 million question, isn't it? If all things are yours, if life is yours, if death is yours, if, if, if all the influences are yours, if, if, if everything present is yours, if, if everything to come is yours, if all are yours, it, it only leaves one question. So what are you going to do with them? with all that is yours. That's the big challenge. That's what I believe that we have come to because to some degree, um, our previous understanding of the gospel excused us from this question. What are we going to do with life? What are we going to do with the present? What are we going to do with life? What are we going to do with death? It's, it's all ours. What are we going to do with the world if it belongs to us? And that becomes the question that we now have to wrestle with. So... In view of this, what influence should verse 23, that's the one, and you are Christ and Christ is God, have on how we process and engage with that? I, I think the influence that has is one statement to me, that if I am Christ and Christ is God, then I am condemnation free. If, if I am Christ's and Christ is God's, and, and, and all belongs to me, and I'm wrapped in that, then it can only mean one thing, that I have to live life condemnation-free. And um, because we bring the past into it, that, that's a thing that we, we are probably most often 
have a sense of being incapable of doing, living condemnation free. Um, you know, we look at prayers that weren't answered. We look at situations that weren't turned around. We look at, you know, things that didn't pan out as we hoped they had. And somehow within us is this generation of this thing called condemnation. <clears throat> and of course, the problem is that where, where condemnation exists, we feel that punishment is just around the corner, somehow in some way, or, or when we see something happen, we, we believe this is punishment because I should be condemned for what that, so what's happening now is the punishment. And, and of course, then that, that fear of punishment means that we're in the category that, that um, John had to talk about when he said there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And punishment has to do with the condemnation. So, so the issue is once we're in that place, we, we cannot take ownership, true ownership and full ownership, not just of our lives as, as they happen, but the sense of actually, this actually belongs to me. I am not a passenger in a process that, that I have no ability to influence or no authority to stand within because I don't believe it actually belongs to me. It's like something that's here, that, that, that it doesn't belong to me. Now, again, you, some of you are thinking, but if it all belongs to me, everything would work out just how I figured it should work out. But that's not, that's not the issue. But the issue is in its belonging and in our involvement within it, when we take ownership, the truth is something bigger happens, a bit like the pearl coming from the, the grit or from the, or from the parasite. Something bigger happens, but it only happens when you embrace the process, when you wrap it around with, with something. Rather than let it just continue to be what it is, you begin to wrap it in the grace that you know. You begin to wrap it in the love that you know. You begin to wrap it in the faith that you have. So that the end result is that it becomes the pearl and not the grit, not the irritant. So, so... Um, so if all things are yours, that raises this question, what, what are we actually doing with them? And what influence should this verse 23 have on the process? So, so Paul has to write in Romans 8, having written Romans chapter 7, again, we're getting all biblical here. But basically in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, if, if, I, if I take the looking back perspective then I come to one conclusion, and Paul said this, and this is my conclusion, O wretched man that I am. So, so as far as Paul is concerned, when, when he's looking backwards, you know, and he, the phrase he uses, he says, he says, what I ought to do, I don't do, and what I, I didn't ought to do, I do, and I find that there's a, a war going on, and, and if, he, if he embraces that war in the wrong way, then of course what he's doing, he's trying to make the past his. And this is what I'm trying to get through to you, that, that, that Paul says nothing about the past is yours, right? 
But while ever Paul is holding on to that view, looking backwards of himself, his, his, his context is, I'm wretched. Um, who, who's going to deliver me? And then, of course, we have to be thinking, by what means of atonement, by what means of sacrifice, by what means of external influence can I be delivered from this? But when he slides into writing what we know as Romans chapter 8, of course, there were no chapter uh, distinctions back then, he slides right into saying, but, you know, it's a big but. Paul had a big but. But there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Now, now Paul said, you are Christ and Christ is God. So to those who are Christ, there is no condemnation. So if there's no condemnation, I can step up to, to, to taking ownership of the things that he says belong to me. And therefore, ownership means influence. An influence means, means change. It means things are not necessarily as they are, but there's a partnership that, that moves things forward to what, in essence, could be the things that are possible, the things that could be what we would know as miraculous, the things that come from the unseen. So, so condemnation-free is the influence when we realize we're in Christ, and Christ is in God. No condemnation to those who are in Christ. The law of the spirit of life makes me free from the law of sin and death. So I want to read a, a couple of quotes now from uh, what Chris referred to on Sunday about the, uh, about the eruption of Mount St. Helens, the, you know, the um, active volcano in 1980, and how you know, it was looked at as an utter disaster that could not recover. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, the miracle is that, that um, 40 years on, um, it is a thriving, vibrant um, expression of a process of healing that um, even the experts have been astonished by and have learned with all the wisdom we have have learned from the reinvigoration of Mount St. Helens um, because it was not expected. Something, something began to show up that they had not taken into account. And I think the lessons of it are amazing. So I, I just got a couple of pa few paragraphs here of, um, from some of the writings about that. This was one of the quotes on, on Sunday. Restoration efforts weren't really needed because life is enormously competent and well-practiced at reinsinuating itself into disturbed areas. This is just that, you know, when you say, you know, the earth declares the glory of God and the heavens show his handiwork. Um, the truth is, if we don't grasp this, the reality of this grace statement that Paul says about everything is ours, then I think sometimes we are interfering in ways that are not helpful to ourselves or sometimes to the process. You know, I'm, I'm very grateful for, you know, for, for prayer and however that is manifest and where that is genuine. But I've also watched people be utterly and totally crushed and demoralized because their prayer wasn't answered. If my prayer had been good enough, then this person would have been healed. That wouldn't have happened. If, if my life would have been holy enough, 
If I'd have just done the right things, then, then things would have been different. And so, and so the problem is we, we, we then begin to interfere in processes that sometimes I think can be detrimental to the process, not because of what we failed in, but then because of what we didn't allow to be, when actually life is coming out of it, but, but not always at the source that we thought it would originally. So, so the restoration efforts weren't really needed because life is enormously competent and well-practiced at reinstituting, it's reinsinuating itself into disturbed areas. Uh, our expectation should be that life is incredibly tenacious. And I think sometimes we, if we even get the revelation that there's an aspect that you can leave the earth to, to fix itself, and I think it has an incredible ability to, to do things, we, we, we have to come back to understanding that Sometimes we are trying to mess with things with our so-called spiritual knowledge that if we would just rest in the fact that all things are ours, life and death, you know, things present, things to come, the world, and we would rest in that, I think sometimes we would see far much more of a expressed manifestation of the life that could and would grow under that that sometimes i think i think we have we have starved it of oxygen with our over spiritualizing of stuff and i think sometimes how we've developed the gospel has starved the life of the gospel it's smothered people rather than just allowed the life that god has put within them in christ to begin to emerge because we simply don't over-mess, but we simply come to try and be on the peripheral of that, something that's helping what is already taking place if we would just recognize it and release it. And of course, that wonderful word, reinsinuating, I'll come back to that in a, in a moment. Um, it says about the scientists, they were in for plenty of surprises, especially in places where the landscape was dramatically transformed. These were areas buried by the landslide or where the old growth forests, which had defined the ecosystem for hundreds of years, were now gone. Now, I would, I would say some about our journey that we've engaged on, um, you know, probably has been a bit like a, a volcano landslide, where the old growth forests, which has defined the ecosystem for hundreds of years, are now gone. And the problem is we can think, if we, have, if we have deconstructed and dismantled things that we thought were the way things ought to be, then should we not expect that the thing will now die and have death in it, rather than understanding that moving those things out of the way were actually about to be a wonderful release of something fresh and something new on Mount St. Helens? says, so in some places, it doesn't make sense to talk about recovery. Chrysophuli said, whoever Chrysophuli is, Chrysophuli said, we are talking about new landforms and there is no possibility of returning to pre-recovery. Uh, just let that sink in a little bit. He said in terms of this change that we want 
that it didn't make any sense to talk about recovery. Because actually recovery, as they would have understood recovery, was never going to take place because that would be trying to bring back the past, but the past was the past and it was what it was, but they were going to find that moving the past out of the way actually made, made the, an environment in which fresh things and new things which are amazed them could actually begin to grow. So he says, you know, we, we're not talking about recovery, we're talking about new landforms. And there's no possibility of returning to, 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 to uh, he called it pre-covery, right? Can't return to pre-covery, we're not going back there. So, but overall, Christofuli, it's a great name, isn't it? And others would argue that the areas hit by the blast are doing just fine. Now, I, th I think sometimes how we define just fine in a spiritual context and in a life context can, can be a long way away from just fine because our idea of just fine is how we would perfectly see it panning out. And of course, that itself brings pressures with it, which we'll talk a little bit about on Sunday. That once perfection comes into the equation, you're always on a lose-lose situation and... Uh, uh, you know, nobody ever wins in that environment. Nothing's ever good enough and nobody ever wins. And uh, so he says, you know, others would argue that areas hit by the blast are doing just fine. Sometimes we have to look at life and say, because everything is ours, life and death, things present, things future, actually, we would assess that things are doing just fine. Now, of course, when Mount St. Helens is covered in lava and, and most of the old growth is gone, doing just fine is a very difficult thing to say because, because doing just fine is not always what you can see at the moment. Doing just fine was actually all going on, even under the lava flow. It was incredible. And where the snow caps were on the mountains, because the snow caps had, had put things to sleep under the snow and then the lava went over the snow and then the snow melted under the lava but that left an oxygen pocket where the new grain was in there and as it began to break down it all came through so actually underneath the lava it was doing just fine. Even the lake itself that was filled in that used to be 200 feet deep was doing just fine. Because what happened is the water that still would flow into the lake flowed, but now it was on a different bed. And what happened is it changed the whole ecosystem of the lake that where life forms that were not present before now began to be present, which brought in other life forms. But, but it's the, this issue sometimes that, that recognizing that if all is ours, then it's fine. Things are fine. It is well. It's fine. So, um, yeah, Christopher would argue that areas hit by the blast are doing just fine, more diverse and species rich than the old growth forest that had dominated for so long and, and was healthy by most standards. So by most standards, the, the old growth format was healthy. And in the context of what it was and what it was for, it was healthy. 
But he's saying here that that um, that that uh, it became more diverse and species rich than the old growth forest that dominated for so long. Healthy by most standards could ever could ever um, provide. And, and and this I love. He says invasive species. A fear early on have not proven to be a problem. What he's saying is that what grew up meant that invasive species, that means species that weren't supposed to be there because they were introduced into the ecosystem, were now no longer a problem because a lot of what was gotten rid of by the lava flow were what are called in, in, in ecology invasive species. In, in other words, they grew where they shouldn't have grown in ways that they shouldn't have grown. And because of that, they were preventing the real life that should be there from coming through. So, you know, when we've talked to you before about, it's like, it's like um, I can't remember who wrote it, but I think it was Brian McLaren, that about every five years, you know, the, the church has to have a, every 500 years, Every 500 years, uh, the church has to have a car boot sale where, where you go through all the stuff that, that used to be useful and used to be valid, but, but now is not useful because it was for a time and it was for a period and it was for a, 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 um, it was for a, a, a context that has now long passed has to be gotten rid of. So if you look at history, about every 500 years, there has been something happen to have a clear out. Why? Because what happens is invasive species. Now, I, I think, as we've tried to teach you, that invasive species have gotten into our understanding of the gospel. Invasive species have got into our, our declaration of the character and nature of God. Invasive species have got into our understanding of ourselves. Invasive species have got into how we define life and how we live life and what life is. And it's pulled us away from the one great mystery that we need that is Christ is in me and he is the hope of glory, that I am in Christ and Christ is in God and that it all belongs to me. And that somehow because of that in there, my interaction and my connection with all things will ultimately produce pearl and not stay as oyster. You know, that's when I talk about the, you know, the blessing we mustn't forget or the hope and the expectation. So it talks about the invasive species and, and that's what we're trying to rule out of, uh, of, of our, our repurposing of the gospel, that which has been invasive. So all of that stuff, we've, we've, we've talked much about it, you know, the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, this word, uh, just, a, just a note on that, this, um, this um, insinuating, re-insinuating. Um, you know, Chris gave a definition of insinuating on, on um, Sunday that says, using subtle manipulation to maneuver oneself in a favor, into a favorable p position. So, again, we think, you mentioned manipulation and we think of control. But, but, you know, you wouldn't say that of a chiropractor or of a physiotherapist who use manipulation in the process of their work to bring healing. So, 
but, but we've, we only understand now manipulation, or you're trying to manipulate me in the sense of, of some evil act that is, is connected to control rather than healing. And we've become so geared towards that that, that sometimes we can lose sight of, of what the manipulation process is that I believe, let's use the word, the Holy Spirit engages in in the world, in the expression of the being of God that, that is not controlling things, but there are those we, we use the word nudges the other week. There's the gentle manipulations that are, are trying to bring some movement and trying to bring some health and, and trying to get you to a position and, and, and a flexibility whereby you can engage with this process of life so that that which be belongs to you, that which is yours, can be fully experienced and fully engaged in, in the whole process. So the other word that was there, which is, which is lovely, Chris raised this as well, it's, um, it's a, a sneaky insinuating move, sneaky. Reinsinuation is sneaky. And where we've moved away from, you know, God controlling everything, you know, God is in control. One would have to ask is, is there a, a sneaky thing going on, which is a kindness, which is a grace of, of God working with us and God working in us and God working through us and in our engaging with that, finding ourselves at a place where where the expressed manifestation of ownership becomes one that allows the kingdom of God to show up in, in ways that perhaps we didn't expect and, and it sometimes hadn't planned for, but, but bring us to that realm of possibilities, of, of where we still embrace possibilities so that we don't close ourselves off to what could happen. So, um, I want to just bring one last thing. Just, just give me a few more minutes because um, I was, I've been reading something this week in, in the Old Testament uh, around the story of Elijah, the prophet Elijah. And, um, you know, myth, legend, metaphor, allegory, I don't know, sneaky, re-insinuating, whatever you want to make of these, there's some very powerful, powerful understanding in it that I just want to close with um, tonight. Here's where I wrote about it. Through its many stories and accounts, which we would now call the narrative of Scripture or Bible narrative, there is a consistency in the message, some of it questionable, you know, the, to do with Israel's tribalism, some borrowed, because the stories are cross-cultural. Some not unique to the God of Israel and Bible, because, you know, other, other people attributed to, to other expressions of God and their writings. But some exclusively unique, but all important in our attempts to get to grips with life, the gods, the world in which we live, and the questions humanity has always been asking. If we pick out aspects of a story, we can present a case which does not represent the full journey. The full journey, however, tends to give a more accurate picture of all that's going on about and within the story and the individual concerned. 
To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace truly means. And of course, you know, that, that um, knowing what God's grace truly means depends a little bit on your psyche as to what that first says to you. For some of you, oh, that's wonderful. And others of you think that's because I'm so awful and so terrible that, you know, which, which is not where we want to go, okay? Um, so I believe we need to talk in present-oriented grace ways, not past-dominated condemning ways. We've got to talk about our present is orientated in grace. Our, our ways are governed by grace, not those past-dominated condemning things. You know, we said on Sunday, choose calm over chaos, peace over perfection, grace over grit, and faith over fear. And, and I said the three things are face it, grace it, faith it. Okay, those are the three steps. But real quickly, the reason I mentioned that is because uh, you could take even the narrative of the story of this prophet Elijah and, and pick things out just to say one element, when actually what I want to show you just, just for a minute is, is the way this thing flows is, is not all straightforward. So, you know, from 1 Kings 17, we have, we have Elijah, he's at the peak of his powers. He prances into the king's presence and said, it's not going to rain unless I say so. Um, and uh, there was power in his words, and the truth is it didn't rain. It, it, it stopped raining. Now, you know, you can go into all kinds of thoughts about should he have done that, should he have not done that, whatever. But the truth is, the narrative is that he went in and he said it's not going to rain. Peak of his powers. And, um, and then he talks about the word of the Lord coming to him and telling him to go to a place called the Brook Cherith. And, um, you know, of course, now it's not going to rain. There's going to be drought and famine. But he finishes up in the time of drought and famine at the one brook that's running. Now, again, you can get into what, why him, why not, whatever. But, but there, is, there is metaphorically within the story this issue that sometimes you have to speak bold. And sometimes you have to understand that if you listen and you'll be willing, you, you will find yourself in a time of drought and famine where water is still flowing. And then, you know, you've got this interesting thing. It says, and God commanded the ravens to bring him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, you know, if you know anything about ravens, a raven ain't going to give you nothing. It's just not, you're not getting a share. Uh, so, so the whole metaphoric issue here is that, is that these ravens would give up for Elijah's benefit what would be unnatural for them to do. So he's pointing that within all this, we, we should believe and expect that things will happen unnaturally, that things will give to us that normally shouldn't give, that we will be fed from places that we maybe shouldn't have been fed from. And you can look at your life and say, well, how does that work? How does that manifest? I think I've been a beneficiary of this. And, and I want to stay uh, positively open to this happening. But then the brook dries up. 
So imagine all the questions then. You sent me here, God. You said about this brook. Where are the ravens? Why aren't the ravens bringing me bread and meat anymore? Why is the brook dried up? See, when you get into the whole story and the psyche of an Elijah, now he's going through all the challenges you're going through about, is it all this really mine? Is life, is death, is the present, is the future really mine? Because look, the brook's dried up. The ravens are nowhere to be seen. But then if he finds this woman who's collecting sticks. And she's collecting sticks because when he asks her, she's got, she's got one pot of flour and one little jar of oil. And she's, you know, it's a real sob story. She's going home to use the sticks to make a fire, to bake one last piece of bread from the from the oil and the, and the flour so that her and her son can eat it and then die. Um, which is, you know, and then, so, so Abraham, uh, um, Elijah's now gone from this situation to finding himself here in this situation. And he says something very strange. He says, if you first go and take the, the, the flour and the oil and bake a cake for me, and bring it to me, then God will bless you. So, so that, so that the, again, the metaphor of this and the reality of this is she goes and takes what she could have used for herself, and she uses that to make something for someone else. See, here's another principle coming through, that taking what you have, sometimes the last of what you have, to be a blessing to someone else, giving it away, giving away, okay, giving away, meant that her flour and her oil miraculously never stopped being in the pot and in the jar until the famine was over. So you've got the biggest story here of all the questions, then why is all this dried up? Why is there no ravens? You know, there's just this stupid widow collecting sticks. But then she becomes a source of provision, see, all flowing together, and he becomes a provision to her. But then the next thing that happens is he's her house, and she comes to him, and she had a son, it's her only son, and he dies. It's like, well, this shouldn't be happening. Why, you know, we, we've, you know, you've been, you've spoken to the king, and it hasn't rained, just like you said, you've, you've, You've been led to the only water source in the land. You know, I mean, ravens have been giving up food to you. And then you, this woman has come and, you know, you've spoken and she's given to you. And then in giving to you, everything's multiplied. And now the woman's son is dead. Uh, and so she comes, of course, she's, this is terrible. You know, what have you done? Um, and... Um, you know, basically saying, which is interesting to Elijah, why, why have you come to me? You know, are you bringing my sin to remembrance? Did you come to kill my son? So now he's having to deal with, not that you're amazing, you're fabulous, I'm so glad you're in my life, with you killed my son. You know, my life's fallen apart and it's all your fault. So how does he address that? Well, you know, he has the opportunity to, to go from it or to respond to it, finishes up. Again, I'm keeping the story very brief here. He does something that I would not recommend doing in today's um, environment of political correctness. He lays the boy on the bed and then he lays on top of the boy three times, you know, face to face and hand. Don't do that now. We, we, can, we can do without the, the legal implications of 
I don't care even if God told you to do it. Just don't. I like my freedom. But again, this is a metaphor of him, him in, in the situation of accusation, being willing to lay his life out, believing that life will come as he lays his life out because it belongs to me. It belongs. I can, I, can, I can respond because life will flow from this. And, you know, to cut a long story short, the boy comes back to life and, of course, she thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread, which she didn't have much of until he came along, but now she has plenty of sliced bread. So the whole, the whole thing is, um, you know, but then... But then I wanted to bring it to this. By the time you get two chapters on to, to 1 Corinthians 19, um, you know, he, he's gone through some stuff, won't go through the whole thing, but, but um, uh, the king's wife gets all ticked off at him. Her name is Jezebel. And, uh, you know, Jezebel swears that he's going to die, she's going to kill him. Um, you know, so it's gone from... Height of this, you know, I'm amazing. Look, I just prophesied to the king that no rain would come and all this stuff that's gone on. But, but now being threatened by the king's wife, Jezebel, um, he totally loses it. You know, the, the, the threat of that, it says he got up and ran for his life. He lost, he lost all his confidence. He lost, he lost all his strength. I mean, it's like, he, he, you know, this is real life. That's where it's, if you just take the one story, Abraham was fed by the ravens. Yeah, well, uh, Elijah. But yeah, but Elijah's now running scared. He's, he's totally lost confidence in his, in his ability, in, in his presence, in, in, in what belongs to him. He's lost all his confidence, and he's now on the run. And um, he goes out into the wilderness and, and sits himself under a tree and prays that he might die. You know, the whole thing, oh, muse, all my fault, all of this, I never got into this. You know, kill me now, God, just kill me before I do any more damage. So, I mean, he's, he is utterly, utterly distraught and uh, not really the, you know, the man of God, the man of faith that, that you would think. And really does pray, Lord, take my life. You know, I'm, and of course, the, I'm no better than my fathers. I've tried, but obviously I'm no better than, you know. And of course, what he's doing here, in essence, to some degree, is he's trying to make the past belong to him, which grace says the past doesn't belong to you. So anyway, when he lays under the tree, it says an angel comes and touches him and tells him, you need to get up and eat. And, um, you know, he sees, whether it's a vision or reality, whatever, he sees a cake baked and, and on coals and a jar of water. So he, he eats and drinks and then, of course, you know, does the thing that it would do, lays back down again and stays where he is. Um, but then he gets, he gets, he gets, um, the angel comes back a second time, touched him, says, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. What I'm trying to show you in this is that in all this process of, of, of life belonging to us, it has many shifts and turns and takes many shapes to the point where we still have to appreciate that even though all is ours, the journey is too great for us if we don't allow ourselves to be absorbed into the grace of what we have been promised and who we have been told that we are and what we are wrapped in and what we are about the truth is we, we won't have the strength to make the journey. 
So it says he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food. And of course, this again is your, your metaphorical thing for 40 days and 40 nights <clears throat> as far as the mountain of God. Now, of course, whenever you see the 40 days thing, the 40, you've got the 40 years in the wilderness. You've got Jesus, you know, 40 days in the desert. The 40 is always speaking about, about the point at which you have to discover your true identity. You know, the, 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 the real essence of 40 years of the children of Israel in the desert was the struggle to discover their true identity. Who I really am. And not who the situation has made me or, or that history has declared that I am. Or even my, even my um, overblown ego in my own ability. Oh, well, I know who I am. You know, I pranced into the king and told him it wouldn't rain. You know, I'm just so all these flashing sparks from my fingers and lightning bolts from my backside. And, you know, it, it's showing the whole gamut here that, that ultimately he's come to the point to realize that in this process of understanding and grabbing hold of that all things are mine, I have to come to the point where the, I realize the journey is too great for me outside of this process of grace. And I also have to embrace the fact of this 40 days, 40 year thing, that until I embrace my true identity, everything will hit the skids. It will not be able to progress. And, and so God has to bring him to this place of the challenge of who, who am I really? What is my real identity? That's what the 40 days and 40, 40 nights was all about. And then, you know, he, he, goes, he has to go out on the mountain, stand before the Lord, and there's a there's a, 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 this great storm wind that, you know, smashes the mountains and whatever it says, but God wasn't in that. And there's, a, there's a, um, uh, an earthquake and it says God wasn't in that and a fire and it says God wasn't in that. You know, the essence being that, that the external things that we often look for to be the manifestation of God in our lives or the power, it says God wasn't in any of those. And then there came a still small voice, and may, maybe maybe the still small voice was just as absent as the fire and the wind and the earthquake. Because sometimes, you know, we can say, "Well, you know, God will just speak quietly." I don't know. I mean, but um, but uh, after he'd done this, it um, it says, um, you know, God was. It says so. So Abraham, uh, Elijah went out and stood in the entrance of the cave, and suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? It was just the challenge of, of you have brought yourself to a place because of your inability to grasp who you truly are that's now meant that you can't do what you were purposed to do. And so it's interesting. I don't want you to take this um, in a way that I don't want you to take, okay? But he says, you need to go back the way you came. Now, I don't by any means believe that that means that, you know, in our journey as Q, we've got to go back to what we were. But I think what it means is you've got to occupy the space that you occupied, but you've now got to occupy it in a different spirit that's the result of the journey that you came. And so one could argue that Elijah's influence 
on, on the place that he had been placed was much greater when he had been through all these experiences than he ever was before these experiences because now what you might call his ego has been dismantled and now he's coming back in a grace, a covered grace that makes him realize that actually in, in very simple ways it all belongs to him and so he influences, he influences not only the course of his own nation but he influences the, the course of the nation of Syria and he also, of course it's out of this that, that um, he also influences what will be the legacy of his ministry which is, you know, when Elisha gets anointed. So I just wanted to give you that little catalog of events to show you that if you pick out just one odd thing from there, um, it can give a misrepresentation of what is actually the, the flow of how life works and how we can actually go from, you know, um, being a legend in our own mind to, to suicidal in the journey of trying to understand how to get to grips. But, but when we come to that discovery of our identity, and that's why the 40 days is so important, our identity as an individual, our identity as a church, as a ministry, why, when you come to that understanding of identity, that's when you're at the beginning of being able to grasp what Paul was saying, and we talked about at the beginning, that... that that it's not about people, it's not about personalities, it's not about ministries, it all belongs to us. The world, life, death, things present, things to come, all are ours, and we are Christ, and Christ is God, and that if we live out of that spirit, then it's out of that spirit that truly we begin to see the full expression of our own heart and dimension, realizing what life is, realizing what the world is, but understanding that just like the process in the oyster, that's the process that we are also a part of in ourselves and that we are growing pearls in ourselves. We're growing pearls in what we do and that what has come in that we might say is a parasite or, or, or the grit, we, we're not labeling that as evil anymore. We are laboring that as something that's come in that actually, as we realize all things are ours, we begin to bring change to that process. And so we become all that we're supposed to be. So I think that's about it. I hope that makes uh, some sense to you and that in that we can open ourselves up to that Again, that possibility, that potential, that aspect of our journey that says that because God is with us, all things are possible, but we can also accept and embrace the rest of stuff that goes on because we're realizing actually all things are ours, whatever those things are. So I hope, that's, uh, I hope that helps you a little bit and uh, it gets into your spirit and you can make something of it. So be blessed, we're done, we're through and appreciate you being here. All right. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash Q Church York. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.